Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession today is from Proverbs chapter 28, verse 15. It reads like this, Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Authority or power must not be used to hurt the poor. God ordained offices of authority to protect the helpless and the weak. When civil rulers oppress the poor, they are like wild and ravaging beasts. They do great harm by cruel and insensitive abuses of their power. And this proverb calls any ruler like this a roaring lion or a charging bear. These are the type of dangerous animals and wild beasts that are kept in zoos. Leaders and rulers that do not take care of the poor are wicked. There's a great duty of authority and rule uh, that's there for those that consciously provide for those who are unable to defend or to help themselves. And when a wicked man gets into power and oppresses the poor under his rule, it's a frightening evil. These cruel beasts have none of the kindnesses and mercies that characterize godly and noble rulers. And we've seen many of these abuses in wicked rulers uh, in the past, of how they have ruled in the past, and how it can happen even today. It can begin, not begin, but it can be seen by overtaxation for pretentious building projects or unnecessary military campaigns. They can complicate the legal and the tax system, which hurt those in, that are poor and are unable to get professional help. They legalize abortions, which kills poor, unborn babies. They raise a minimum wage that reduce the number of jobs for the poor. And they draft our sons and our daughters into an underpaid military where the rich avoid, by, avoid the conscription. They can protect, overprotect labor unions and raise the prices of goods, ruining companies and industries and ruining the ambition and opportunity, or ruining the opportunity for the ambitious ones. And they can promote entitlement until the poor are helplessly dependent in the state and unwilling and unable to do anything for themselves. And the list of these offenses to the poor and the weak by those in authority could go on and on. But this proverb extends beyond just the political realm. There are tyrants more than just in the civil rulers. God will also ju judge cruel, overbearing husbands. Therefore, it's important for husbands to love and cherish and to tenderly care for their wives. God commands fathers to not to oppress their children. A father may have God-given authority and strength to rule his home, but it's better to do it with affection and do it with mercy. Even chasing for sins is to be done tenderly. Employers, employers must take good care of their employees, especially those at the bottom. Ministers and elders must never neglect the poor, for God hates partiality. Hates partiality. Those endowed with authority from heaven, they are to be like nurses. And there's only one perfect ruler, and he sits on the throne, throne of glory over the entire universe. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. God chose the poor of this world 
to be his children, and he has assigned their care to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reminder of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are in the middle of the Lord, thank you for your word, without which we would still be stumbling about in the darkness and our wickedness and our sin, and we would still be estranged from your grace, and we would not know what righteousness is. Father, I pray that you would help me to equip your people now and to feed them faithfully as the under-shepherd of your son, our chief shepherd. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. I'm going to be reading and, this, and preaching on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 uh, this Lord's Day. So I'm going to begin with verse 17 and read to verse 24. So please listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying to us through His servant Paul. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of God. And this is an appropriate Christmas sermon. You realize that, right? You know why? Well, we read it in Matthew. Why did Jesus come? To save his people from their sins. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. Putting off the old man and putting on the new. Why are we able to do that? Because Christ has come and has saved us from our sins. And so we are new creatures in him. And Paul is telling us here in this passage to live in a way that is consistent with that truth. To live in a manner that is consistent with the birth of Christ, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Now in this passage, it's very obvious what Paul is talking about. He is addressing the struggle between the old man and the new man, which he also addresses in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Now this is a struggle that every one of us here in this room, I hope, are familiar with. We are painfully familiar with this struggle because we face it every day. You have already faced it this morning, I would wager. I have already faced it this morning. I'll tell you that story later. It has to do with windshield wipers. But anyway, the old man refers to your former manner of life. Paul says that right here in verse 22. And that refers to who you were and what you were like before you were raised to life in Christ and brought near to God in Him. That's the former way of life. 
The new man refers to the new creation that you became when God raised you from the dead in Christ through the blessing of regeneration and granted you a new heart and sealed you with His Holy Spirit, something He addresses frequently in the book of Ephesians and everything that precedes this passage. But I want to draw your attention to a particular phrase in verse 22 because it is essential to understanding Paul's point in this passage. He says that we are to put off the old man. He means that we are to stop living according to our former way of life. That's his point. We are to stop living according to our old way of life. This tells us two things. The fact that Paul gives us that exhortation tells us two things. Here's the first thing it tells us. It tells us that it is possible for us to fall back into our former manner of life. It's possible for us to do that, even as professing Christians. If we do not put our sin to death, as Paul warns us in Romans 8, verses 12 through 13, if you do not put your sin to death, then your sin will kill you. You will die. Or as the Puritan John Owen famously wrote, be busy killing your sin, or your sin will be busy killing you. This is Paul's point here. And I want to make a clarification, lest you think I'm Arminian. Don't mistake me for that. I'm not saying that a born-again Christian can once again die to God and lose his salvation. That's not Paul's point here. We know, because Scripture teaches it with such clarity, that salvation is all the work of God's grace, and its success, its completion, does not depend upon our efforts. It rests solely upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But my point is this, that all of those who are truly born of the Spirit really do kill the old man. They do not return to their former way of life as a dog returns to its vomit, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 22. And those who do fall away and never repent reveal that they were never truly of us, as John tells us in 1 John 2, 19. Here's the second thing Paul's command to us, exhortation to put off the flesh, put off the old man tells us. Here's the second thing. It tell, he's telling us that everyone who is born of the Spirit, everyone who is born again can be identified by their battle against their flesh. That's the marker of the born again Christian. The battle against the flesh. They see the sin within themselves. They feel their own wicked desires and they fight them in the power of the Spirit, but not always successfully. But they never give up in the fight against their sin. They never make peace with the old man, but are always at war with him. They read passages like this one here in Ephesians 4, and they are spurred on in the fight. Sometimes they feel like giving up because their sin is so great. And their weakness is so profound. And so sometimes they are discouraged. Sometimes they are weak. Sometimes they are beat up. But when they hear the word of God declared to them. When they are reminded of what Christ has accomplished for them upon the cross. 
When they join with the saints in worshiping God like we are now and feel the Father's inexhaustible love toward them, then their hearts are encouraged and their arms are made strong again. Does that sound at all familiar to you? This battle I am describing. If it doesn't, I have concern for you. Because as I just said, everyone who has been born of the Spirit knows this struggle because they face it every day. They feel torn in two between the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the Spirit. And they get worn out and beaten down by that struggle and need frequent encouragement because it is a hard struggle. And if you don't sense it within yourself, you need to do as Paul tells us and examine yourself. Examine your heart to see whether or not you are in the faith. Because if you are not at war with your sin, then you are not in the, within the faith. But if you are at war, if you do sense that struggle, if you do feel torn into, then be encouraged. As discouraged as you may feel, be encouraged. Another Puritan, I'll quote another Puritan this morning, right? We like Puritans. Another Puritan by the name of William Gurnall, in his, uh, his three-volume series, The Full Armor of God, tells us that we ought to be encouraged by that sense of being torn in two because it tells us, it proves to us, it demonstrates to us that the Spirit of God is at work within us. It shows us that God is at work, that we are engaged in warfare with the flesh, that we are not making peace with the old man, but we are engaging in battle with him. And that ought to be a great encouragement to us. Now, in everything that follows here, and everything I'm going to say from this point, Paul's purpose is to teach us how to wage that war against the old man and win. It's important to know how to win. And it's important to realize this, saints, that Scripture tells us that we can win against the old man. Indeed, that we must win. It's so tempting. I know it's tempting for me to make peace with my flesh. And to, to say to the Lord, well, Lord, this is just who I am. This habit I have, this attitude I have, this weakness that I have, this sin I keep returning to. I've been struggling against it for years, Lord. It's just never going to change. Bear with me. I, I'm never going to overcome it. Woe is me. You will not find such thinking or teaching within the word of God. Scripture says, be holy as God is holy. Put the flesh to death. It's just difficult to know how to do that. Well, Paul shows us how to do that here. So how do we win that fight? How do we win the battle against the old man? Well, in order to defeat the old man in each one of us, we have to understand how he operates, right? This is Warfare 101. If you're going to defeat your enemy, you need to know him. And you need to know how he works, how he functions, how he, what strategies he employs. Consider verse 22 again. Paul tells us that our former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now the word corrupt there means ongoing destruction. It's not a one-time destruction. It's a destruction that occurs and then keeps on going on, keeps destroying. Deceitful desires refers to desires that result from being deceived. These are the desires of a deceived person, okay? Now, the problem with the Gentiles, as Paul tells us, and that he's referring to unbelievers there, distinguishing Gentiles from Christians, all right? Covenant people 
from the non-people outside of the covenant. The problem with unbelievers, Paul tells us, is that they are deceived. They have no understanding of the truth of the gospel. Notice in verse 18, Paul tells us that they are darkened in their understanding and that they are alienated from God. They're strangers to Him. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. And why are, there, why are they ignorant? Why don't they have an understanding, a knowledge of God? Why is their understanding darkened? Paul tells us because their hearts toward God are hardened. They have hardened hearts. His point here is that unbelievers, those who are outside of Christ, have no real understanding of the truth. They don't understand the truth. They don't understand the gospel. It's a mystery to them. It's foolishness to them. And this reminds us of what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is what Paul is saying here. He's reaffirming that point. Now since they have no understanding of the truth, they can't understand the word of God, the gospel is foolishness to them, they are deceived. And because they are deceived, the consequence of being deceived, intellectually deceived here, is that they are carried away by their wicked desires. That's, what, that's the connection that Paul makes here. They are deceived as far as the gospel goes. They don't understand the word of God. And the result of that is that they are callous and greedy to practice every kind of impurity, as he tells us in verse 19. And this echoes what Paul tells us in that very sobering chapter, that first chapter of Romans, in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 that when mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, when he, he knows that God is there, he knows who God is, but he refuses to give thanks to him, he refuses to honor him as God, what is the result, Paul? What does Paul tell us the result of that is? Well, he tells us that refusal to honor God leads to their minds being darkened. And once their minds are darkened, what follows after that? Exchanging natural relationships for unnatural ones, being given to deceitful desires, being led away by unnatural desires. And that's what happens when mankind's mind is darkened, when he no longer understands the word of God and the gospel that it teaches us. And he dies as a result of it. It leads to his destruction. So this teaches us something. It teaches us this critical point that our greatest defense against our deceitful desires of the flesh, and we all have them, is truth. Our greatest defense against the old man and his desires is truth. Specifically, the truth of Christ, as Paul reminds us in verse 21. That's how you overcome the old man, is with truth. That shows us how to defeat the old man and to put on the new man. By putting our minds to good use by learning the truth. And here's our strategy as we're fighting against the old man. Our strategy is not to allow our minds to be enslaved to our sinful desires, but to instead use our minds to take control of our desires and bring them in obedience to Christ, to conform our desires to the Word of God. But the only way you can do that, saints, is through using your mind, 
by being taught, by understanding the truth, and then applying that truth very intentionally to your own life. Listen again, Paul's emphasis here upon being taught and understanding and learning, starting in verse 21 through verse 24. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Notice the connection he makes in these verses. The new man is put on by being taught, by being taught the truth of Christ. And when we are taught the truth of Christ, our the spirit of our minds, as Paul tells us, are, is renewed. So Paul's point here is that in order for us to put on the new man, we must apply ourselves to learning or being taught the truth of Scripture. And he tells us that when we learn the truth of Scripture, this renews the spirit of our minds. And we should stop here for a moment and ask ourselves, what does that mean? When Paul says that we must have the spirit of our minds renewed. What is he talking about? Now, spirit can refer to several things when that word is used in Scripture. Of course, it can refer to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need renewal, though. So Paul's not talking about the Holy Spirit, all right? And the Holy Spirit doesn't belong to our minds. He's not an aspect of our minds. So he's not referring to the Holy Spirit. Spirit can also refer to a person's soul, the spirit that we all possess as human beings created in the image of God. But given the context, that's not what Paul is getting at here either. He's talking about our minds. So what does he mean by that? Well, the third sense that in which spirit, the word spirit can be used, it can refer to a person's way of thinking or their disposition, the spirit of their minds, the way you think, the way you look at the world, the way you look at God, yourself, and others. We might call it attitude as well. So when Paul says to have the spirit of your minds renewed, he's talking about renewing our attitude, to use more modern vernacular here. All right? That's his point. So to have the spirits of our minds renewed is to have our way of thinking brought into conformity to the truth of Scripture. That's what he means. Stop thinking like an unbeliever. Stop looking at the world and your desires like an unbeliever who doesn't understand the truth and start thinking and acting like a Christian. In order to live like a Christian, you must first think like a Christian. Does that make sense? In order for you to live like a Christian, you have to think like a Christian. Consider for a moment, I think probably many of us here were saved later in life. Now, if that's true of you, if you were saved, if you came to Christ, if he took hold of you later on in life after you had lived in sin for a time, when you, look, when you lived in sin and you look back on how you lived at that time before you knew Christ, what do you often say when you look back on your manner of life prior to Christ? What was I thinking, right? What was I thinking? What was I doing? It didn't make any sense. I was, I was insane in many ways. My life made no sense at all. And for many of us, even those of us who have been in Christ from an early age, even as we grow and mature in Christ, we look back at some of the things we once did and believed as young Christians, and we ask ourselves the same question, 
What was I thinking when I said that, when I did that? What changed? What changed between the point, the point in your life that you look back on now when you ask yourself, what was I thinking? And now, what's changed about you? Well, here's what's changed about you. Your mind has been renewed in the intervening years. How has your mind been renewed? The spirit of your mind, how has that been renewed in the intervening years? You've been taught the word of God. You've matured as you've been fed with scripture. And you've learned about who Christ is. And that's been applied to your own life. And you've grown up into the faith. You've grown up into maturity in Christ. As Paul discusses earlier on in Ephesians 4. So that's what he's getting at here. Is a growing maturity in Christ. That ought to be what describes the Christian life. Now Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. That all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The point here is that we are corrected by scripture through being taught. That's how we are corrected by scripture. Simply by being taught. It really is that simple. It really is that simple. You don't need a 10-step program, all right? You don't need a methodology. What you need is the Word of God faithfully applied to your life. What you need to do is to give yourself to the study of Scripture so that you understand it. Now, from all of this, you're catching on to something here, my underlying point. And what I'm getting at is that using our minds is necessary to putting off the old self and to putting on the new self, the new man. Notice that putting on the new man is something that we must do. Paul does not tell us that God will do it for us or that anyone else will do it for us. We must do it ourselves. We must put on the new man. We must apply ourselves to being taught the truth of Christ. And if we neglect the study of Scripture, what will happen to us? When you neglect scripture, when you neglect the study of the word of God, what's the result in the life of the Christian? Well, you become weak and you become naive. And you know what else happens when you become weak and naive? You become prone to following your feelings rather than God's truth. When you become detached from the word of God, you become given to your feelings rather than being conformed to the truth of Christ. I know that's true for me personally. And I'm going to say that it's true for all of us here. That's how we operate, saints. That's how we live apart from the truth of Scripture. We follow after the old man. We do whatever pleases us. We do whatever we feel like doing. And Scripture is very clear that we are culpable if we neglect, neglect, excuse me, neglect Scripture and become weak and immature as a result of that, we're culpable for that. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says to his audience, his original audience, in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish 
good from evil. Do you hear his agreement with Paul in that passage? Why were his readers weak and immature? Because they hadn't been training their powers of discernment through constant practice in the study of Scripture. Paul reminds us again of this responsibility to be equipped and to train ourselves and to be taught in Colossians 2, 8, where he says to us, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Who is to see to it that you are not taken captive? Who? Me? Your elders? Well, that's part of our job. But ultimately, who is to see to it that you are not taken captive? You. You personally bear that responsibility. This is what Paul is saying to us here. We have to see to it that we are not taken captive by ideas that aren't based on Christ. Starting with ourselves. Starting with our own ungodly, unbiblical thinking. Now... Let's think about this in personal terms, in terms of our own lives here for a moment. As we learn Scripture, and as we are applying ourselves to the study of God's Word, we are enabled to identify those areas of our thinking in which we are yet self-deceived. And that's something that's important for us to recognize here, is that once you come to Christ, that doesn't mean you are, you're sin-free and that you're no longer self-deceived in any sense. We all have areas of our thinking in which we are still fooling ourselves. You, the, best, the, the person who is most skilled at deceiving you is yourself. You realize that. Satan can't tempt you until you first deceived yourself. And once you've deceived yourself, then you are susceptible to his temptation. But you fool yourself first every time you sin. You're lying to yourself, and so am I, whenever I sin. And so it's important for us to recognize that. I have areas of my heart and my mind and my life where I am still in the dark, where I am still kidding myself when it comes to my sin. I'm still self-deceived. We know that because we have all had moments, right, where we hear at one particular sermon, at one particular moment, we hear a truth, that we've heard for years, but it's like we've heard it for the first time all of a sudden. Why is that? Because God has turned the lights on, and we've come to recognize an area in which we were self-deceived, so that we can repent from that, and instead believe the truth, rather than fooling ourselves. So think of it in these terms, saints. If you are struggling with sin in your life, recognize, it's critical that you recognize the problem resides not only in your heart and with your desires, but it also, first and foremost, resides in your thinking. The problem is with how you are thinking about your sin, if you're you're struggling with a particular sin. The problem starts in your mind. There is some sense in which you are yet self-deceived, and you keep falling prey to your own self-deception. What's the answer to that? The answer is to put off the old man by having your mind renewed by the truth. Not allowing yourself to follow after your feelings, but to instead conform your feelings to the truth of God's word. You know, that's an incredibly uncomfortable thing to do. Because sometimes our wicked emotions are just rampaging through us. 
And they feel so strong. And to take those strong, simple emotions and make them submit to the truth of Scripture is no easy thing. And that's why we have to cry out to the Spirit of God for His empowerment to accomplish that feat. That's why Paul says that we put the flesh to the death to death by the Spirit. Not by our own strength, but by the Spirit. But you know something? I've seen this in myself. When I am caught up in sinful, wicked emotion, I don't want to pray. I don't want to ask for God's help. I want to get my way. I want to do what I want. I don't want to pray. So I have to discipline myself to even say, Holy Spirit, help me. And He always does. Because he promises us, right? Hebrews 4, that we have a high priest who identifies with us and who is ready to help in time of need. 24-7, that he lives to intercede for us. But actually praying in the midst of that sinful emotion is very hard. But that's where it starts things. Because that's what scripture tells us to do, is to put the flesh to death by the spirit. And that means not drumming up all the power I possess to overcome my own flesh. It begins with humility and fleeing to Christ and saying, High priest, help me. But that has to begin with the humility of actually asking for his help. Realize, you already know this, but I'll tell you anyway. The flesh does not go quietly, does it? The flesh screams and mules and complains and objects every time you try to run it through with the sword of the Spirit. It never goes quietly. It always has an objection. It always has a justification. Anytime you try to slay it, it does not go quietly. You just have to still still have to put it to death. You have to ignore the screaming and the complaining of your flesh and kill it anyway. John MacArthur says that. Yeah, John MacArthur. We we like John MacArthur, right? We do. We do. He says sometimes you just have to hack. Agag to death. Do you remember what Samuel did with King Agag when Saul marched him back? Samuel says, Saul, Saul, what am I hearing? What's this lowing that I'm hearing? Well, you know, Samuel, I thought I'd just bring back the best. That's how our flesh works with us. Well, we can hold on to just this much, but God has said to clean house, leave nothing alive, sea of glass. Yeah, but that's really, those are really nice oxen. And here's King Agag, and he's quite a prize. Right? That's what Saul was thinking, just like our flesh thinks in regard to our sin. Like, ah, we can keep this right here, right? And what did Samuel do? In spite of any protest, you can imagine Agag was protesting. He doesn't say that, but we can imagine he was protesting. And Samuel just hacked him to pieces. That's all that scripture tells us. That simple. The prophet took the sword and hacked Agag to pieces in front of God and everyone. And a glorified God. That has to be our attitude toward our flesh things. Have to hack it to death. But you can't do it by relying on your own feelings. You can only do it by having your thinking conformed to the Word of God. By bringing your feelings into submission to the truth of the gospel. There's also, we're almost done, there's also a corporate application here too. That's, that's personal, right? Corporately, as a church, if we are to serve one another faithfully, because we can't do this thing alone, right? You cannot follow Jesus by yourself. None of us can. We need our brothers and sisters 
to be faithful Christians, to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Paul makes that point at the very beginning of this chapter. If we are to faithfully serve one another and walk in a worthy way, then we have to apply our minds to studying God's truth. So it's not only for your own self-interest that you have to apply yourself to the study of God's word so you're not led astray by your deceitful desires. It's for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ that you must do this as well so that you will be in a position to help them when they fall into sin. That's what, we need to be able to lean on one another. But listen, if we're all weak, naive, and immature, and empty-headed, if we're all children... Spiritually speaking, as the author of Hebrews writes, how are we going to be able to rely on one another? We won't be able to. This is why churches fall apart. In the long run, they become lukewarm. They all become naive, immature children. And the Lord removes the lampstand and the doors are closed. It becomes ineffective because the believers weren't doing their job. They weren't helping one another out. So you have a duty to do this, not only for your own sanctification, but for the sanctification of the corporate body of Christ. So that we are able to minister to one another with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You can't say, you can't allow yourself to get away with thinking, well, that's the pastor's job. Well, the pastors, yes, we lead the way, but we are all called to minister to one another in that way. We are all called to encourage when a brother is discouraged. We're all called to confront when a brother is in sin and won't repent. And the only way to be equipped to do that is if you are giving yourself to the study of Scripture. And if we show ourselves to be approved workmen, as Paul called Timothy to be, and as we are called to be, and we rightly divide the word of truth, then we'll be able to minister to one another effectively. All right, finally, this is my, we'll close with this. We live in a very dark age. We all know that. And it's becoming increasingly dark, and there's a sense in which that works to our favor, saints. Because when the world becomes increasingly dark, even unbelievers begin to see a line in the sand. Wickedness grows to such an extent that even those who are yet strangers to Christ see that wickedness and think to themselves, I can't participate in that. That is disgusting. That is wretched. That is even evil. I tell you, I am reading more and more articles written by agnostic and atheistic professors who are saying, listen, it's clear to me now that we have to make a choice. If we're going to preserve Western civilization, atheism and secularism isn't going to cut it. You either have Christianity or you have Islam, but those are your choices. And when you have atheists and agnostics recognizing that, saints, the Lord has given us an opportunity there. I read another uh, writer who was actually, it was a comment on a blog that I read. And it was an unbelieving man who was just distressed by the wickedness he sees going on in our society. And he said his comment was this, something to this effect. Things have gotten so bad, I'm about ready to read the Bible. Now what drove him to that? Well, he saw the contrast between light and dark, truth and error. We've got to be there for these people, saints. Lord willing, there's going to be more and more of them. And we have to be in a position to show them the way to Christ. We have to be in a position to provide 
understanding in the light of Scripture. And the only way that we can do that is if we are training our own minds according to the Word of God. It doesn't mean we each have to be a scholar. Don't hear me to be saying that at all. You don't have to be the next John Calvin. What you do need to do is be diligent in ensuring that your mind and your thinking is conformed to the truth of the gospel and that your feelings are being led by your mind and your mind is not being led instead by your wicked feelings. Only when you are right with God and sanctified, right, in your own life will you be in a position to help those who are beginning to wake up in our culture and realize, I need to choose a side. Something's gone horribly awry. We want to be ready, willing, and able there to extend them the invitation to come and join us here in the family of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, our battle against the flesh is never-ending this side of eternity. And yet we thank you, as hard as it is, as painful as it is, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that you have given us all that we require for life and obedience and holiness. Lord, help us to obey what your Spirit has said to us through your servant Paul. Help us to not be led astray by our own deceitful desires, but help us instead to put off the old man and to put on the new man by ensuring that our thinking aligns with the Word of God and that we are conforming our feelings and desires to truth rather than being led by our desires so that we will honor you and shine like lights in this darkened world. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. We also ask that you would please teach us how to pray as our Lord taught his disciples. Our family this Christmas is reading through a book called Hidden Christmas. And in it, the author points out some intriguing things about the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, which I'd like to share as an encouragement and exhortation. In ancient times, a person's genealogy was like our resumes of today. And just as one would want their resume to look good, so also the people back then were concerned with the impressiveness of their genealogy, even to the point of making alterations to it. But in the first chapter of the Gospel account of Matthew we find that he does the very opposite with Jesus' genealogy. Most notably, there are five women listed in the genealogy, three of which are Gentiles. Back then, it was unheard of to name women in your list of ancestors, and certainly as a Jew, to include Gentile women. And yet, there they are, gender outsiders as women and racial outsiders as Gentiles, but included in the genealogy of Christ. Also, by including these outsiders, Matthew brings to mind some of the most sordid and sinful acts of Jesus' ancestors. Even King David has, in this genealogy, his biggest moral failure displayed for all to remember. Matthew writes, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. David the king is an ancestor of Jesus, and yet his adulterous and murderous ways are what are brought to mind when we read the genealogy of Christ. Why is this? Why does Matthew include the Gentile women and hint at the sinfulness of Jesus' ancestors? 
He is showing us that even in the ancestry of Christ, we find the miracle of Christmas, the power of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, moral, racial, and gender outsiders are brought into the family of God. Matthew is essentially saying to us, look at the mercy of God that even these people are included in his redemptive work. If they can be included, then so can you. So dear saints, come to the table of the Lord. Come whether you are man or woman, adult or child, whether you have sinned a little or have sinned a lot. Come. Jesus has given himself for you. He has obliterated all the boundaries and obstacles that have once kept us out. He has done for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. With his body and shed blood, he has atoned for our sins and made us holy. Christ's body broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.